Hi everybody. What a life. I need to say that again. What a life. We all wander on through our days and hours and minutes and live with this assumption that it will all keep ticking over, that tomorrow will follow today, that we'll pick up the dry cleaning on Tuesday and have a picnic on Sunday. Last Saturday night, Matt, Cal and myself sat up and watched Kung Fu Panda together. At a very poignant moment in the movie, the shaman turtle said, Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Matt and I locked eyes over Cal's head and smiled at each other. A beautiful opening to an amazing eulogy delivered by Emily Rowe. Our special guest today on the 30th of June 2011 at St Mary's Church in North Sydney. I love making this episode. It's quite an emotional chat with Emily and just a beautiful relationship that she describes with her late husband. But before we get to Emily, you can probably guess I'm a bit of a fan of the long form podcast. I am on the longer side of things here at Speakola. Well, I love the long-form podcast, and there is now a new magazine, issue one out now, that celebrates the long-form podcast. It's called The Podcast Reader, has George Orwell on the cover of issue one, and the idea is to publish long-form interviews that are on podcasts, edited for readability. In the first edition, there's an interview with Christopher Hitchens talking about the real power of Orwell, and that was on Econ Talk in 2009. But there are also interviews with Peter Thiel, Margaret Atwood, Frank Wilczek, and that's all in edition one. Get your subscription now at podread.org or find them on Twitter at podreadmag. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello, everyone. My name is Tony Wilson. This is the Speakola podcast. Long time no Speakola. Well, it's been a month. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, you may have seen my little video message apologizing for the delay, thanking you for your support. And I certainly do thank you for your support. Not great times to be in the entertainment slash speaking slash writing business here in Australia. And so if you want to support this podcast and this speeches project, you can become a Patreon subscriber. The address is patreon.com forward slash speakola, or you can find the link in the show notes to this podcast. And some people are just doing donations as well. There's an opportunity to do that at speakola.com forward slash donate. It's locked down here in Melbourne. Feels like it's always locked down here in Melbourne. I think we've racked up about 215 days in lockdown, which is possibly the world record. I know London got over 200 as well, but we really can do them down here. Five kilometre radius, mask mandate, curfews, and there's a lot of interstate politics that's polluting the debate Delta strain getting out from New South Wales, which has a little bit more of a laissez-faire approach to a lockdown, and their one came late and unsuccessfully, which has sent its spores out as far as New Zealand. But I won't get into the politics of things. In fact, the choice of speech today is deliberately non-political. It feels like we need something to unify us, and nothing is more unifying than a love story. And today's feature speech is a beautiful love story and also a very sad love story because it's delivered in the form of a eulogy. Emily Rowe lost her husband in June of 2011, Matthew Carney dying at the age of just 43. 
as a result of a cardiac arrest caused by the chemotherapy he was taking for his cancer treatment. Spicola actually turned six in the last few weeks. I think we've had 4.6 million hits on the site. And for me, it's these personal speeches, these ones that tell the story of love and relationships that have been the part of the project that I've enjoyed the most. I've put up dozens of these personal speeches, many of which have been submitted to me, some of which I've sought out. And Emily's speech for Matt was one that I sought out. I saw it on Twitter. I thought it was incredible. I read that she works as a grief counsellor, and I thought the combination of anyone who can write that beautifully and then dedicate their professional life to helping other people with grief would make for a great interview. And I I certainly was not disappointed. I, I loved this chat. I cried during the chat. I cried during the edit. I cried while hearing the re-record of the speech. So here she is, my interviewee, Emily Rowe, or as she describes herself on Twitter, Emily Rowe, grief coach, dragon mother, hat maker. Well, a few weeks ago, I was reading Twitter, and I've wondered in recent times whether I'm getting enough out of Twitter to justify the angst it sometimes causes me. But on this particular day, I read a speech, a eulogy, and it was really quite spectacular. And it was one of those Twitter moments where you kind of thought, this is amazing that I can be immediately connected with this person's life and this person's grief. Because the speech was a eulogy and it was delivered by a woman who described herself in the Twitter bio as a grief coach. And her name is Emily Rowe and I'm very pleased to have her on the podcast. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tony. Tell us a little bit about how that speech made it to Twitter. Well, last year when I started tweeting, I guess, in earnest during the lockdown because I needed some way to feel connected to people. I was moving house and I came across these folders of my husband's artwork. My husband, Matthew, who passed away in 2011, was a sculptor and he was a really prolific artist and I had a lot of pieces of his work. I don't have so many real pieces of his work, but I have a lot of images of them. And I decided that I was going to put like a running gallery together. And so I was taking photos of these images and uploading them to Twitter like once a day and telling a little story about the piece of work and how it was put together and who it was for. And it started building quite a following. I ended up creating a lot of lovely connections with people that really enjoyed his work and really enjoyed a little respite from, you know, what Twitter can sometimes be. And it felt great to have this kind of living gallery of his work that I was showing it. And so people came to know me through Matt's work. And this year, as his the anniversary of his death was approaching, I spoke to one of our very dear friends down in Tasmania who said to me, um, I still read Matt's eulogy all the time. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, it's actually on my phone. Do you still have a copy of it? And I said, well, somewhere, but I'm not sure where. And she sent it back through to me and I had it on my phone and I thought, you know, I think I want to share this with the people that have been enjoying his work that have some kind of knowledge of this life that Cal and I are living in the wake of losing him. And and your friend mentioned your friend mentioned that she had the eulogy on her phone. Had the eulogy been a thing that was revisited by you a lot? Had, had, did you have printouts and had you read it a lot of times after the event? Not really. It was kind of it was such a difficult time, and there was so much emotional and and psychological and social work that I had to do to start rebuilding a life after he'd passed. So for me, it was the impact of it was felt in every everything. You know, I kind of 
there was definitely I died that day too. The version of who I was ceased to exist and I had to start recalibrating this this version of myself of what life was going to look like going forward. So I didn't really look back too much, no. In terms of the delivery of the speech, you start in the last few days. Um, your recollections are of a, a, a conversation just a few days before. Can you can you tell us a little bit about the whirlwind of writing and then delivering a eulogy at such a difficult time? Yeah, well, Matt's death was not anticipated. And I think part of this eulogy intimates that uh, he, he had cancer and... Um, that we kind of knew it was coming and and we really didn't because he didn't die of the cancer. He had a cardiotoxic response to the chemotherapy drug that he was given. Mm. So his death was extremely sudden and very unexpected Mm. and it was really only 16 days into his treatment that uh, I tried to resuscitate him on the living room floor. Um. I think I was still in an extreme state of shock. I was at my parents' house and all of my family had returned. I have an older brother in San Francisco and a sister in LA and their children. They were all back in the country because we'd been uh, celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. So everybody was there. And the day that... The day that Matt died, we were due to go down to, I have a brother who's a a neurologist and he had a fundraiser in town in Sydney and Matt had donated some sculptures to it and we were going to go down for that evening and celebrate with everybody and help raise money for this this disease. And, uh, of course, that's not how the day unfolded. Um. Yeah, I was definitely in a state of shock. I didn't know our daughter was seven and I didn't know how to even start to try and explain to her what was happening straight afterwards. Mm. Um, They had taken Matt to have an autopsy because his death was unexpected and... They needed to get to the bottom of how it had happened and why it had happened. And I was kind of watching outside of myself a little bit like a Robert Altman movie, I think. Like it wasn't really happening to me. Like, can this be me? Am I actually sitting here with funeral directors choosing a coffin? Mm. Um, I, I wrote this very late the night before the funeral. I hadn't written it and every time I sat down to have another cup of tea or a cup of coffee or scotch with somebody, they were like, M, the eulogy. And there had been a little bit of pressure about the service. I was very grateful that my big brother stepped in and just kind of managed all of that. And it really just came out in one long expression. I think in my mind's eye I was very acutely aware of the fact that I needed, it was such a huge tragedy and people had flown in from everywhere to celebrate his life that I needed to make sure that I gave them memories and an intention that was true to who Matt was. Well, you certainly did that. It's an incredible piece of writing, and uh, even to the extent that I want to ask, you know, before we get to the actual speech itself and the the you know the magnificence of the content, what sort of writing had you done? I mean, how easily does a structure like this come to you? Uh, so my original study when I left school was I did a BA in English Lit and History, and I was fascinated with contemporary. American literature. I've basically been an unpublished writer nearly all my adult life. So in my youth, I was kind of waiting tables and writing in my spare time or doing bar work and writing in my spare time. And I 
have written a couple of novels, both that are sitting dusty on shelves. After I had my daughter, who has some uh, health uh, disabilities, it all just kind of got put on the back burner. I, I didn't really have enough space, enough dream space, but I think that's kind of a byproduct of trauma. Yeah, it does have a, a beautiful structure, and I, I guess it starts, as I said, in in the immediate present. You you recall a a moment watching Kung Fu Panda with your daughter, the moment where the shaman turtle says, "Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift." That is why it's called the present. You know, it's a lovely way to get into what's going to be the 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 overarching theme of the speech. Yeah, well, it's and it's very much a reflection on, like, the intensity of who Matt was, that it's this moment now. I mean, he had a real urgency with the way he lived his life. He did one beautiful sculpture of these horses and they were kind of pixelating out into nothing at the back and it was called So Little Time. And people used to kind of laugh and joke about, you know, Matt having this obsession with time because as an artist he got to choose his own hours and didn't have deadlines and they didn't really see what he did as having an urgency but it turned out he didn't have time you know mm. uh, he was only 44 when he passed then emily you, you take us back into the past you go to the moment that you met and i think people just love that in any speech involving a couple, the, the how we met story, and, and I guess you had quite a funny one. Well, well, we did, and it was like a very unusual time in history. So, so I'd flown into Chicago and, weirdly enough, I'd kind of made a pact with the universe when I was on the plane because I was really sick of dating idiots. Like I just kept... I was running this really high-end costume jewellery business. I had a, you know, million-dollar budget. It was super fancy. Like I was totally living the sex in the city life. But my dating world was just pathetic. It was so, so sad. And I kind of said to the universe, well, if it's me and a few cats, then I'm going to be okay with that. But I'm just not going to settle for crap anymore. Like I want it all or I don't want it. And then the universe served me Matt, you know. <laughs> so. Um, and as you said, leather-clad buttocks up a ladder. Is that right? <laughs> oh, exactly. Exactly. And he was a beautiful man, you know. Uh, he kind of looked like a, um, uh, yeah, he looked like a movie star. I mean, super handsome, super gentle too, like. A big guy, but very gentle. His energy was was very calm. Yeah. And and then you get into the the whirlwind romance, I guess. And I, I like how quickly you do that. That really, you're married and child with child in two paragraphs, and there is a sense that that life and love has just exploded. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were both living such polar opposites at the time. He was living down on Bruny Island with, you know, in a very isolated existence, making art and on the edges of everything. And I was in the middle of everything, but I was time poor. I didn't have any creative space. So, it, you know, it wasn't working for me. And it was also just a couple of weeks, I guess, after September 11. I mean, what what was New York like in those weeks? Oh, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. It's that smoke, you know, it was still going months later. It was just plumes and plumes of smoke in the whole of downtown where I lived on Fifth Street. I had to get past. They had, like, guards at on 14th Street, so you had to show your ID of where you lived to get downtown. My street, which had the 9th Precinct on it, was barricaded up and you had to show ID again. The National Guard was everywhere. The FBI was everywhere. There were posters all over the place of people that were missing, which, of course, we know they were gone. And 
everybody was deeply traumatized. Yeah. And and it was only a, a, a brief encounter, really, before he kind of trucked off somewhere else and, and you had to reunite later? Yeah, we had a couple of conversations. Well, we had some long conversations because we were at um, Navy Pier in Chicago, which is like the big uh, convention centre where this sofa exhibition was. And so we were having big chats during the day and coffees and we sat next to each other at a meal and swapped details and he had been planning on coming to New York, but after 9-11 changed his ticket. And I thought, oh, you pussy. Like <laughs> I thought he was a bit of a chicken for not coming to New York. Yeah. Um, and I went back to the city and, you know, life kind of I'd already resigned from my job and was trying to figure out what the next step was going to be. And I came home one Saturday night. I'd been babysitting my friend's kids and I came home and there was a message on my answering machine because this is pre-mobile days. And he had called me from London and said, look, I don't know why I thought you'd be home on a Saturday night, but I was thinking about you and I was wondering whether you'd like to come and see me in London. And I thought, oh, that's a pretty big ask. (laughs) Um. But then we did speak and, you know, at that time there was also the whole anthrax thing going on and my boss, whose last name was Arabic, uh, his name was Alexis Batar, and he was totally freaking out that there was that, oh, well, he was just a drama queen. But he went off to Iceland with his boyfriend and basically left me with 12 blank checks (laughs) and said, (laughs) you take care of everything. (laughs) So... You know, I'm having to open the mail every day with a mask and um, goggles on, not knowing whether there's going to be anthrax in the mail to get the checks out to put them in the bank so I can still pay my staff who are all having nervous breakdowns as well because most of them are from war-torn countries that thought they escaped it by moving to the USA. Yeah. So I kind of thought, he said to me, look, the rest of the world is kind of normal. It might be helpful for you to just get out and get a little perspective because you you really are right in the thick of it. Yeah. So um, I went out and had cocktails with a friend of mine, an Israeli friend of mine, and said, what do you think I should do? And she said, I'll just go. Like, what do you got to lose? <laughs> just go. And I was like, okay. So I booked a ticket. Nobody was flying. Uh, so I think it was like I paid 220 US dollars for a virgin <laughs> flight return to London. And uh, I got there and I caught the tube out to where he was going to meet me and he was late and I'm standing there with my luggage thinking, what have I done? Like I've just travelled halfway across the world to catch up with this guy who I don't even really know. What if he doesn't show up? I don't even have a plan B. And then he came flying around the corner apologising that he was late and we spent, you know, two weeks in London. He was finishing up a commission at Richard Branson's club at um, Heaven. And, yeah, we went and saw the Turner Prize and talked a lot about art and life sat in his friend's garden and drank endless cups of tea. And that first day I'd been on the plane and then we were sitting outside drinking tea and he disappeared and then he came back and then he disappeared again and he said to me, okay, look, I've run a really nice bath in there for you if you want to just go and have a relax and, you know, just take some time. That must have been a long flight from New York. And I was thinking, wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this guy's just run a bath for me. This is a good start. <laughs> i tell you what, I think even your description there is better than the plot of Sex and the City 2. I think you've surpassed it in five <laughs> minutes. It sounds very romantic and he sounds like a, a, a hell of a gentleman. And I can also hear the way you describe that, that you have a natural knack for 
minutiae, which is really what novelists look for, you know, to say the little thing that will give you a taste of the whole. And I guess the next section of the speech does exactly that. It's got a, a lovely and quick number of vignettes, little word pictures that, that just give us a sense of your lives together. You mentioned Xenia the Husky and close up our perfect white cat with different coloured eyes and windsurfing trees, abalone art, nature and little girl cuddles. You know, it's just a really nice little section that quickly traverses a lot of life with small details. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I really felt like I, I needed to do that. And also, you know, um, I think I need to talk about this because it's not something that's readily talked about when we talk about things like funerals, is that funerals don't necessarily bring all families together. And, they, and it doesn't always make for comfortable situations especially if there are relationships that haven't been resolved or they're uh, difficult. And we certainly had to deal with that in terms of the loss of Matt. So I think a significant part of that, because he was a child of a first marriage and was kind of estranged from other members of his family, and I think it was also really significant that I painted for them a picture of a life that they chose not to be a part of so they could understand that he was happy. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's really, I mean, that is something that isn't spoken about. And it, it, that section of the speech does the job. And you come out of it with this, I guess it's almost an exultant story. And you talk about him coming back from windsurfing and he'd come home salty and sandy and cold with a huge grin on his face and yell, I'm alive, as he came through the door, which is gives us such a sense of personality. Um, and also, I guess, there's a, that leaden, you know, kick in the guts that he's not alive, you know, that this person who was so alive isn't alive. And, and you know, I, I guess, um, you know, that that's a bit that I found, you know, quite an emotional part of the speech. Well, and just that, I mean, that he was out there, windsurfing in those cold winter months down in southern Tasmania where, you know, they're big sharks. That's that's a heavy place to be out swimming yeah. <laughs> uh, and windsurfing or surfing. It's, it's a pretty significantly intense terrain to be in. And it didn't, you know, there wasn't a, any kind of trepidation. Into, and it wasn't like flippant about it like he gave it its due reward of of honoring the 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 enormity of it but he wasn't going to let it him it stop him I you know I'm a little bit more of a timid person I think my recklessness was born of of kind of a little bit of denial but his was a different kind of thing and so for him to be okay to jump on his windsurfer and do that and I'd kind of have my heart in my mouth the whole time until that van came flying back up the driveway, you know, there'd be a part of me that was always a little bit worried he wasn't going to come back. Um, and in that terrain he was safe, but yet while he was being treated, you know, and being told to take a medication, that's ended up ended up being what cost him his life, you know. Yeah. And, and you mentioned out of the I'm Alive bit, you sort of talk about how full his life was. And, and that includes the, the artistic, creative part of his life and, what I loved about this was that sometimes when people deliver eulogies, they, they get bogged down in the kind of biography. You know, this person went to this school and then went off and, and sometimes they don't sort of get a, give a sense of the person in the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, your description of his career and, and the beauty of, of, of lines like he was a man who could take sharp edges and, and soften them to a curve, you know, you traverse the career stuff beautifully here. Yeah, well... It's a labour of love to be a sculptor. <laughs> it's not an easy career. And for Matt, it was just something that he had a natural ability. I don't know whether it was like this kind of incredible fluke of his skills and perception because he was raised by, you know, his mother who was a, a psychiatrist that only treated with psychotherapy his father was a surgeon who obviously had really good hand skills. So 
he seemed to be this really interesting combination of those skills in that he was deeply reflective on how he could connect with people and he also had this physical ability to to make things. Tell us again about where he was in a career sense. Um, you, you talk about his art beautifully in, in the eulogy. Well, he's what would probably be described as a mid-career artist. There's always a lot of attention on people when they first establish their art career, but then staying with it is another thing. We used to have a running joke with a lot of the artists that we knew that if they didn't get a grant that year, they didn't make any art. <laughs> um <laughs> Whereas for Matt, he was very pragmatic about it. It was how he made a living and it was how he supported our family. So he made everything from little tiny steel wool sheep that he wholesaled at $15 a piece to, you know, other sculptures he wholesaled for $1,000 a piece to commissions he was doing for $20,000 a piece. So he was trying to make art for whoever's budget could appreciate it. And you mm. talk about his love of art morphing into a, a love of music and his passion for early morning, presumably headphoned guitar. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and, and, definitely and headphones. <laughs> and you became involved in that, writing songs together? Yeah, well, I, I've always been a musician. Uh, I was, you know, um, classically trained as a, as a vocalist and I... And I can find my way around a piano, but I'm not that great. When Cal was born, I had really bad carpal tunnel syndrome and both of my hands like had a lot of nerve damage. And so Matt's response to that was to go and buy me an electric piano, <laughs> <laughs> thinking that, that that might help me and at least be a, a distraction. And we're also down on Bruni, so I was, I was teaching some of the local kids kind of some music fundamentals. And then, yeah, we, we just started playing together and it was really interesting. It's like one thing to be in a relationship with somebody, but it's an entirely different thing altogether to be able to play music together. Yeah. You know, it's it's something else. I guess the reason probably most people who, who have just read the eulogy and not understand the circumstances of Matt's death would have thought that it was a more expected death um, is that you have this amazing conversation towards the end of the speech where you mention you know a recent conversation that says you know m if i die that's okay i've had an amazing life i love my life and i've loved all of it even the dark times and and i guess that you know, I got the sense that he knew he was going to die when he was saying that, but, but you're saying that isn't the case. Well, he had been diagnosed with cancer, but he had been told that it, it wasn't metastatic, that it was encapsulated and that that he was young and they were going to do the surgery, but they just wanted to put him on this neoadjuvant chemotherapy to shrink the tumour before they went in and did the surgery. And they put him on a very high dose of a medication. The first, at first they put a pick line in. So we only really had five weeks to start having these conversations about what his diagnosis was. And we were kind of grappling with the trauma of what a diagnosis is. And um, from my professional perspective, I know that when people are diagnosed or they suffer a, a trauma like that, your frontal cortex shuts down. You're working from your brainstem. It's all fright, fight, freeze, fawn. So it's very hard to take on information and process it and understand what's going on. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know whether I kind of get the feeling he knew that he wasn't going to make it, but I don't think he realised it was going to happen that quickly, that he would end up having a heart attack and, and dying of a heart attack. Yeah. And, I mean, you've read this speech for me. Um, there's no recording from the day of delivery, but you've read this speech for me. And the conclusion is just so beautiful. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, a declaration of love really from a prince amongst men as you describe him. I mean, do you remember writing those words and, uh, and delivering them? Can you tell us anything about um, that experience? Um, 
I do. I, I remember thinking that it was really important to uh, comfort people with uh, Matt's philosophy about being alive, that, yes, he was gone, but just that connection to him and what he stood for should make their lives sweeter, you know, because he was such a bold person. I remember when I wrote it, um, that it was one part of a lot of things I was dealing with. I had a seven-year-old who, despite uh, having a developmental disability and autism, absolutely understood what had happened. Mm. She related losing Matt to King Harold dying in Shrek. Mm. So the full gravity of the situation was was very clear to her and she was she just howled mm. so the day was kind of me trying to figure out how was cow going to cope with this did i need to have various cousins there with a scooter in case she needed to be out in the car park or was she going to be with me or you know uh, there was a great unknown as to how she was going to cope with it and um, I'm trying to think back at the time, to be honest with you, Tony, it's, it was so raw and I think this is something that happens with trauma is that we tend to let go of things that don't serve us anymore hmm. because we have to keep going. Yeah. And mm. and so your memories of standing there are maybe not vivid memories? Um, I remember everybody's faces as we were walking out behind the coffin and I remember Cal – sorry. Just, it's no problem at all. Take your time. Okay. <sighs> Cal is so much like her dad. Um, she's really empathic. And so I remember as we were going out of the church that she was seeing all these people crying and she was going up and hugging them. And I don't think she realised they were crying for her. Yeah. I mean, these are, it's just a, such a, a situation. I mean, was, was there ever a decision that you might have made that, that you couldn't do this speech, that, it, that it's too hard? I mean, there must be a, a lot of spouses and I'd be interested to know in your job as a, grief counsellor, you know, is it is it something a spouse should aspire to do? Well, I think it depends on the comfort level of, of the person. Uh, I mean, I, I it, it would depend. I think it's different for everybody. I mean, I know for me there was, there was a lot of kind of weird family stuff going on um, and not just from Matt's side of the family. And I certainly didn't want anybody speaking that didn't really have the inside perspective. Mm. Um, I think I just thought of it in terms of what would Matt want. Yeah. And then I just had to suck it up and figure it out. And do you remember being able to get through the speech or was it, was it a, could you get, could you get through? Yeah, I think I did. I think there was part of me, and I think that's probably part of my training also as a vocalist because I'm used to getting up and having to perform in front of people. So it was there was a little bit of a detachment there in the sense that I hadn't stopped grieving for a week. Like I was, I had just been in such a dark, shocked place for a week and I was still not really convinced that it was true. It was kind of like living a bit of a dream so 
there are a couple of really interesting things that happened at the church that day. One of them was um, Matt's guitar teacher, Guy Strazulo, who's an amazing jazz guitarist. He was setting up the music to play some music for the service and uh, he had to load all of his gear in on the side door of the church and um, he reversed his his station wagon back and got all of the gear inside and then he moved the car back and parked it and one of the lay people or the people from the sacristy around the other side came round and said to him, oh, do you need me to help you get your gear in? And he said, oh, no, I just reversed back and put it in. And he said, well, how did you do that? And there was like this big metal pole there that shouldn't have been there. Like he shouldn't have been able to have moved his car there, and and he did. Yeah. And uh, after I finished this eulogy, it was a very cold, wintry Sydney day, and there'd been volcanoes in Indonesia that affected air quality and we didn't know whether people were going to be able to get there for the funeral and you know, it was one of those against all odds kind of situations. But I gave that last line, what a life, what a life, and as I said that last line, the side door to the church just slammed shut. Yeah. And everybody, like, turned around and looked and it was like kind of, Matt had left the building. Uh, it's mm. a, it's a, amazing those and people talk about those sorts of things happening, don't they? And the the presence of people. And I'm not sure if you're going as far as saying that, but there is a certain certain a, a sort of majesty, I guess, to moments like this. Well, I think that it's important that we're open to the idea that energy can't be destroyed. So even if we just look at it as that fundamental, we can build whatever narratives we want around that. But I know that also through my work uh, as a grief coach that a lot of the young women that I work with, there's an extraordinary consolation for them in knowing that there's a presence beyond the physical. Yeah. That they're not so alone. You go through this experience, you know, it's, it's ultimate grief, really, and and then make the decision at some point to become a grief counsellor to help people with this process. Can, can you tell us about that decision and, and, and how that unfolded for you? Well, you know, I went back and studied and did my degree in counselling and psychotherapy because I was really struggling to find um, the support that I needed. And I was trying to understand the world I was now in because it's not just that you've lost someone. It's it's totally needs a biopsychosocial approach because you're suffering the physical effects of trauma. It's the equivalent of being given uh, a serious diagnosis or being in an accident. It's the equivalent thing that's happening in your system. So you know, you can't really function safely in the world until that is attended to because when people are traumatised, they don't eat properly, they don't sleep properly, they don't drink enough water, you know, they're not mindful of the conversations they're having with people. All all kinds of things can occur to somebody when they're traumatised as a result of their trauma. So one of the first things that I do is is I step into that space with somebody and make sure that they're attending to themselves and focus on trying to lower those trauma spikes. Um, But it's three different kind of dimensions to it. You've got the personal journey of what is going on in terms of the emotional terrain that partner or spouse is experiencing, and then you also have how are they dealing with it in a in a social way like the people around them because it's normally a bit of a ripple effect the, the people close to them are also having their own grieving experience and and also how does it fit in with the world we're in when people are grieving 
we don't have a lot of dialogue around it. We don't have a lot of conversation about it. It's a bit taboo. I mean, the one thing that people always say is, well, everybody grieves in their own way, but we don't really. We really grieve in similar ways. <laughs> uh, we just don't, we don't want to share the experience of it. The vulnerability of it is too threatening. And it's almost like it's a kind of emotional leprosy, you know, like you don't really want to touch that person's sadness because it might trigger yours or it hasn't come for you yet. So you don't need to worry about it. Like it only, I, I say this often to my clients that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people that have suffered a huge tragedy in their lives. It's changed them forever. And there are the people that haven't suffered a huge tragedy in their lives yet. Yeah. But it's coming. <laughs> um, so I, I was really struggling with finding really practical ways to understand what was happening with me, so much so that I actually have created a whole process that I take people through. It's like a nine-step process that encompasses all of the different parts of the experience for them, like from their emotional literacy through to how they make choices and decisions while they're contemplating what the future looks like. And, and people can look that up, yourgoodgriefcoach.net? That's correct, yeah. And I also have a YouTube channel, Good Grief Coach, that has quite a few YouTube videos just of me rabbiting on in long form about different things that I feel like are related to grief. And, yeah, so I see private clients and I've actually just finished my first nonfiction book, which is, yeah, is being looked at at the moment and that's called The Survivor's Manual. And and in terms of being a survivor, what, what would 10 years on you posting the speech on Twitter say to woman watching the door blow shut at the end of that eulogy you what 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 different position are you in um i think at this point in time i have managed to attain some grace i'm really uh, you know my perception on on life is very different now to what it was then and I'm really thankful for the te the 10 years that I, I got to spend with Matt because there was a really important lesson that I needed to learn about being lovable and he taught me that. And for that I'll be forever grateful. And I also think that we tend to think of things in this very immediate way, like when something terrible happens that, it doesn't mean that more terrible things aren't going to happen because really there's lots of terrible things that happen in life mm. um, and and grieving is part of the human experience. I kind of described it in the book as, as a stage of development as important as puberty really for our emotional maturing. Yeah, I mean I've been thinking about all my own <laughs> grieving throughout your conversation. And I'm sure there's no one could be at 40 and not be grieving, I would think. I mean, it'd be almost impossible. So, I mean, it just resonates so much with all of us. Emily, you finished the speech with almost where you started it, talking about living for the moment, living for the present, you know, the turtle out of Kung Fu Panda. I mean, is that, has that become you know, a bit of a philosophy of yours as well? Yeah, I think in order to be able to experience joy and hold grief at the same time, the trick is to just hold on really lightly. You just need to hold on lightly. Like this is it. This really is the present. It's just today. We don't know what's coming. And I think that that's the whole secret to actually being able to experience joy even while you're grieving is to know that it's just this moment now. How did it feel to read the speech for me? Um, because there was no recording, you've recorded it, and it's a beautiful read. I really I was amazed. I was shedding tears as I was listening to it, Emily. What was it like to say it again now? Well, I had a good cry. <laughs> um, 
it again reminded me of how lucky I ever was to meet Matt and how lucky I am to be raising our daughter. Um, and it reminded me that, you know, we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we respond to it in the in the ways that that matter. And that's really what I I'll tell you something. When we were outside the cancer place at, at um Nepean waiting for his radiation one day, and he said to me if I had my time over, I don't know if I'd be an artist or not. And I said, really? And he said, I'm just looking at all these people, helping people, and I don't know whether my art helps people as much as I would have wanted it to. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting insight into somebody at the end of life thinking I needed to be a better citizen, a better fellow citizen. I needed to be there for my uh, other humans and help them, you know. Um, so that's really kind of informed my journey into creating this space and having this conversation and trying to really normalise vulnerability for people, get them a little bit more comfortable with having a good cry and accepting that, you know, they've lost some something. <laughs> Well, Emily, I've really loved following you on Twitter the last few weeks. And if people do want to find out more about the grief side of things, there's goodgriefcoach.net. But also, you do do hats and fashion as well at lookgooddietrying.com. Is that right? <laughs> I do. That's my little how to not get sucked down the plug hole too darkly. I needed to have some <laughs> kind of ruse some kind of thing that could keep me a little bit fluffy where I was having a little bit of fun just to hold the line. And uh, and that's what I do. I design hats and sell them. And masks in this era as well. And masks. Yes, that is true. I actually have a pussycat mask I need to finish this afternoon that's going to somebody in Melbourne. Well, that's excellent. Emily Rowe, thanks so much for joining us. I've really appreciated our chat. And you know, it's it's just a very affecting speech and I encourage everyone to listen to it. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. Here in Australia, it's football finals time. I have a more than passing interest in Aussie rules footy. My dad played in a premiership for Hawthorne in 1971. Ray Wilson, number 10. And I played in the reserves for Hawthorne between 1990 and 1992. As it turned out, I had more success as a writer than I did as a footballer, and I have written a book about football called 1989, The Great Grand Final. If you know footy, you know the 1989 Grand Final. Hawthorne, Geelong, Gary Ablett, nine goals, Dipper, ribs, lungs, deflating, Dermot, Yates, all that business, the stuff of folklore, and I wrote a book about it. And if you're interested in that book, get in contact with me, tony at tonywilson.com.au. I can send you a signed copy, not signed by Dipper or Dermot, unfortunately, signed by me. It's $35 if I'm posting in Australia, $40 if you want fancy express post. Check out more at tonywilson.com.au. Look, the 1989 grand final was a super game, but super foods, you ask me, what do I know about them? Well, you might be able to guess where this is going. Green skin and purple skin avocados are nature's superfood. They produce exceptional Australian avocados all year round, and they want you to start thinking about avocados as the star of your shopping trolley. If they were lining up and it was a Broadway musical, at the end of the shop, the one that would take the longest bow, get the longest applause, would be the green skin and purple skin avocado. Go to Facebook, and they've got a recipe there for avocado aioli. Apparently, the purple skin Haas avocado takes the curtain call there. 
So go to Facebook, search Greenskin Avocados, give them a like, or go to the website, greenskinavocados.com.au. It's now time to play the speech of the week, and I mentioned at the outset that there was no audio recording of Emily Rowe's beautiful speech from the 30th of June 2011, but she was good enough to sit down and record the speech for me, and it's a beautiful read. So here it is, Emily Rowe recreating her eulogy from the 30th of June 2011 at St Mary's Church in North Sydney. Hi everybody. What a life. I need to say that again. What a life. We all wander on through our days and hours and minutes and live with this assumption that it will all keep ticking over that tomorrow will follow today, that we'll pick up the dry cleaning on Tuesday and have a picnic on Sunday. Last Saturday night, Matt, Cal and myself sat up and watched Kung Fu Panda together. At a very poignant moment in the movie, the shaman turtle said, Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery and today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Matt and I locked eyes over Cal's head and smiled at each other. Matt and I met almost 10 years ago, October 2001. At the time, I was living in New York. I met him at a major sculpture show in Chicago. My sister was in from LA exhibiting, and I went along to support her. Only weeks before the World Trade Center had been bombed, and I was numb, dazed, and grief-stricken, as all New Yorkers were. Matt had booked his trip to the States before that terrible day, but being Matt, bravely set off to America, despite the climate of terror. The first part of Matt I saw was his leather-clad butt up a ladder. I remember eyeing him off and watching him descend. He was introduced to me in a group of people, and when our eyes met, I felt like I had known him forever. Because Matt was like that. When he gave you his full, open smile, his direct eye contact, you felt like you were the only person in the world. He made everyone feel like that, and that's why you're all here today. I felt safe with Matt, because although I was in America, the show was full of people from everywhere, and having come from New York, people didn't know what to say to me. They all avoided me, except Matt. We talked a lot over those few days, and when he kissed me on the forehead goodbye as I went off to New York and he to London, he said, this is the start of a very long conversation. And so it was. The rest is history. I came back to Australia in January 2002, and we were married in January 2003. Calpurnia was born May 2004. We didn't muck around. We had the most fantastic life together, full of art, music and literature, little girl cuddles, bushwalks, Jenny the husky, and close up our perfect white cat with different coloured eyes. We dove off the rocks at Adventure Bay for abalone, scaled the heights of fluted cape. I watched him nurture the exotic trees in the garden of his mother Natalie's Dasher and Bruni. The arrangement here on his coffin is made up of those trees, the tortured willows, the blue spruce, the grevilleas and filberts. He loved nature, loved its force. He'd rig up his windsurfer and head out to Simpsons Bay when the roaring 40s came through and race the cars along the neck doing 80 kilometres an hour. He'd come home salty and sandy and cold with a huge grin on his face and yell, I'm alive! as he came through the door. And he sure was. He didn't waste a minute. His whole life was a celebration. His quest was for meaning. In his sculpture, he worked patiently, conjuring up such beauty for people, everything boldly declaring, you are not alone. His schools of fish, the woman holding the world in the palm of her hands, the filigree leaf of exquisite, perfect Fibonacci detail, his bronze woman pouring, 
the woman offering the cup of life, woman in space, obsession. I could go on forever, but better to Google him and cruise his website. Such a massive body of work for one so young. He had an amazing work ethic in the studio six days a week. Even when inspiration was slow in coming, he kept working. These pieces here, the Crescents, are part of a series he started back in November 2001. He started with this huge pile of scrap metal under his bench and set to make something beautiful from the unwanted. He was a man who could take the sharp edges and soften them to a curve. Rusty sharp lines became the moon. What a gift. After Cal was born, we started playing music together. Matt on flute and or guitar, and I sang. I went back to the piano so I could accompany him on the flute, and he got serious about the guitar. He fell in love with his guitar and would get up at 4am in the morning to practice before Cal and I awoke. When we moved to Sydney, we started getting some gigs and he encouraged me to start writing songs for us to play, and so I did. And writing from what I knew, they were love songs. Hello, love bugs of loveness, he would say to me. Together every day, talking art, playing music, raising our daughter, we were rarely apart. And to the last, I still swooned when he kissed me. Matt also unearthed a new passion in the last few years. Technology had advanced to a place where my now dyslexic husband could read through audiobooks. What joy he found. The wisdom of living with immediacy of action blew beyond the stratosphere as he discovered history, science, literature. Mm. Down in his workshop, he would shape his waxes for casting with his iPod plugged in, soaking it all in. He had always felt so compromised by his dyslexia, and here he had found a way to feed his mind. The amazing kind father and husband grew. The already empathic, sensitive, intuitive soul grew. And when he left us last Thursday, he was perfect. I blessed him the night before he died. I anointed him with oils and kissed him all over his face. We didn't know he was going. He did. He had made peace with relationships he had found troubling. He had been given a chance since he was diagnosed with cancer to really think about what his life meant to him. And he was happy. Really happy. He said to me only a few weeks ago, Em, if I die, that's okay. I've had an amazing life. I love my life and I have loved all of it, even the dark times. Another time, as we were working through the shock of his diagnosis, he said to me, I don't have a bucket list. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. I love my life. And last Thursday morning, he cupped my face in his hands, kissed me deeply and said, I love you more than you will ever know. He was a prince among men. I know that you are all so sad that he is gone, but be glad that he was a part of your life. Learn from him. Explore your desires. Challenge yourself. Make beauty. Love freely. Be who you are. Because this is it. The present. I have this brief time here to try and capture him, and I could go on forever. And when I sit down, that moment will be past. Don't waste your moments. I'm looking forward to talking with you back at Mum and Dad's, sharing our unique, precious moments that we had with Matt. This song is a song Matt and I wrote together and we recorded last year. It's called Life on Love Alone and Matt's guitar rocks. I'll end where I began. What a life. What a life.
What a life indeed. And what an ability to be able to describe their love and life together. Emily Rowe has. Thank you so much, Emily. If you're interested in her work as a grief coach, her website is goodgriefcoach.org. If you're interested in her hats or her fashion masks, the website is lookgooddietrying.com. You can find her on Twitter at Emily Rowe69. You can find me on Twitter at bytonywilson.com. That's B-Y. I'm not so mercenary as to go with the B-U-Y. I am so mercenary as to ask for donations if you like Speakola. Speakola.com forward slash donate or look at the show notes. And there is a Patreon community as well. Patreon.com forward slash Speakola. And thank you to all the new Speakola Patreon subscribers in recent weeks. By all means, send me feedback to Tony at TonyWilson.com.au or give the show a rating, hopefully five stars and hopefully a little review as well in the iTunes store. That helps build us up the charts. Thank you all for listening. Stay well. Lock down well. Wear masks well. Treat each other well. Until next time, speak well too.